Joshua chapter 7. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. The Israelites, however, were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of what was set apart, and the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Ivan, east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and scout the land. So the men went up and scouted Ai. After returning to Joshua, they reported to him, Don't send all the people, but send about 2,000 or 3,000 men to attack Ai. Since the people of Ai are so few, don't wear out all our people there. So about 3,000 men went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of them and chased them from outside the city gate to the quarries, striking them down on the descent. As a result, the people lost heart. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening, as did the elders of Israel. They all put dust on their heads. O Lord God, Joshua said, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction? If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. What can I say, Lord, now that Israel has turned its back and run from its enemies? When the Canaanites and all who live in the land hear about this, they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. Then what will you do about your great name? The Lord then said to Joshua, Stand up. Why have you fallen face down? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant that I appointed for them. They have taken some of what was set apart. They have stolen, deceived, and put those things with their own belongings. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They will turn their backs and run from their enemies because they have been set apart for destruction. I will no longer be with you unless you remove from among you what is set apart. Go and consecrate the people. Tell them to consecrate themselves for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said. There are things that are set apart among you, Israel. You will not be able to stand against your enemies until you remove what is set apart. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord selects is to come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord selects is to come forward family by family. The family the Lord selects is to come forward man by man. The one who is caught with the things set apart must be burned, along with everything he has, because he has violated the Lord's covenant and committed an outrage in Israel. Joshua got up early the next morning. He had Israel come forward tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was selected. He had the clans of Judah come forward, and the Zerahite clan was selected. He had the Zerahite clan come forward by heads of families, and Zabdi was selected. He then had Zabdi's family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was selected. So Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and make a confession to him. I urge you, tell me what you have done. Don't hide anything from me. Achan replied to Joshua, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Babylon, five pounds of silver and a bar of gold weighing a pound and a quarter, I coveted them and took them. You can see for yourself. They are concealed in the ground inside my tent with the silver under the cloak. So Joshua sent messengers who ran to the tent, and there was the cloak concealed in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from inside the tent brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out in the Lord's presence. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan son of Zerah, the silver, the cloak, and the bar of gold, his sons and daughters, his ox, donkey, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought us trouble? Today the Lord will bring you trouble. So all Israel stoned them to death. They burned their bodies, threw stones on them, and raised over him a large pile of rocks that remains still today. 
Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, that place is called the Valley of Achor still today. Let's pray together. Father, you tell us that the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, that it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, that no creature is hidden from you, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So, Father, we thank you that by your grace we can come and receive your word and be cut by it. And this word today in the book of Joshua, we pray that you will help us to profit from these things, that we might walk in a manner pleasing to you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Twenty years ago, on January 16th, 2003, the Space Shuttle Columbia, STS mission number 107, launched from Cape Kennedy on a routine mission that would go until February 1st, 2003. It was a spectacular launch. The ride went well. But during the launch, a piece of the insulating foam broke off from the space shuttle's external tank and struck the thermal protection system tiles on the orbiter's left wing. A similar shedding, foam shedding, had occurred during previous launches, causing damage that ranged from minor to near catastrophic. But some engineers suspected that the damage to Columbia was more serious. So there was concern. The mission control people discussed the matter, and they continued to discuss it through the continuation of that flight. But they did not tell the crew of their concern. As the mission management team talked about it, they said there's no point in telling them that there might be danger. There's nothing we can do about it. And so on February 1st, as the shuttle flight began re-entry over Texas at Mach 15, 207,000 feet above the Earth, they began to disintegrate because there was a compromise, a massive compromise. As they tried to maintain contact, all of the telemetry units manifested a great increase in pressure and in temperature, and there was no communication from the crew. The mission was a failure. The mission was doomed, as everyone now understands, from the beginning. It was only a 1.6-pound piece of foam, but it had done the necessary damage. We come to this section here of Joshua chapter 7, and we have a similar situation. Israel itself has begun its entry into the land of Canaan. It had a marvelous and spectacular victory over Jericho, the first walled and fortified city. And as they experienced that triumph, having walked through the Jordan and now walked over the walls of Jericho and take it very easily under the hand of God, they themselves are still flushed with victory and the triumph. But the reality is that at the very beginning, where we open up this text, we find that there's trouble in the triumph. They have had success, but there's been a breach in their protective shield, as it were, because the very presence of the Lord. There's a problem in the triumph, the horror of a hidden sin, and it's revealed here at the very beginning. So one of the things we've needed to keep in mind throughout this series are some of the differences we see in terms of how God dealt with his people under the old covenant and how God deals with his covenant people today, now, after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are certainly some of those differences even in our text today. And yet the big idea that I want us to see this morning is that God will not allow sin to run free in the midst of his covenant people, but will oppose it for his glory and the good of his people. That's true at the corporate or community level, and that is also true at the individual level for those who truly belong to him. For sinful people who are being redeemed by a holy God, this reality of God's opposition to our sin is inevitably going to be a part of our experience in our journey as his people to our eternal home. And although the experience of that refining fire can be painful, it can seem severe at times. Yet we know if we belong to him, this is actually part of his good and necessary and actually hope-filled work. 
that he's doing this work that he might actually bring us to our eternal home. We would have a safe landing. That our redemption would be brought to completion to fulfill the mission that God has of saving his people rather than it being saved. And so as we look at Joshua 7, I want us to consider this reality of God's opposition to our sin from four different angles. The exciting of God's burning anger. The exaltation of God's great name. The example of God's corporate discipline. And the execution of God's individual justice and mercy. So first, the the exciting of God's burning anger. Notice what we find in verse 1. While Israel is basking in victory, the Lord is burning with anger. And this follows up on the very encouraging words right before in Joshua 6, verse 27. And the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. So the Israelites maybe were high-fiving one another. Hopefully they were thanking God and praising Him. But in the midst of the triumph, There's been some trouble. And the author lets us know that trouble at the very outset. He doesn't leave us in the dark. But just like that shuttle crew, Israel is still in the dark. And here is the fatal flaw. The Israelites, however, were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Remember, the Lord told the people that when you enter into Jericho, there are certain things that belong to me. Chapter 6, verses 18 through 19. But keep yourselves from the things set apart, or you will be set apart for destruction. If you take any of those things, you will set apart the camp of Israel for destruction and make trouble for it. For all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are dedicated to the Lord and must go into the Lord's treasure. And this is what is being referred to here. Verse 1 continues, Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of what was set apart. And the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. We're told of the culprits here. Culprits, plural, which is interesting. And we will speak more about this later. But notice who's guilty. Notice the offender whom the anger of the Lord is burning against. The Israelites. And then it goes on to speak about one person specifically. Achan. So we have two offenders, as it were, the nation itself, and we have the actor himself. We have the individual, and now we find that the nation itself is accounted with the sin of the individual. It's what theologians call corporate solidarity. You know, there are some things that we like to be connected to, and there's a lot of things that we don't like to be connected to. And one of the things that you don't want to be connected to is sin. And what God does is He takes His people... And he takes them as a whole. He expected a whole obedience from the whole of his people and the covenant that he had made with them. And now he labels the nation and the individual as offenders. And the offense they committed is that they were unfaithful. They broke faith. This denotes a treacherous betrayal. It's the language used, actually, of one who commits adultery. God absolutely abhors this act. It is dreadfully wrong. So the narrator sees what's going on and he tells us about it as believers. But poor Joshua has no idea what's happening. Fresh off the Jericho victory, naturally, he follows his usual military procedure. So in verse 2, he sends two spies to check out the enemy city. And in verse 3, they report back just as they did at Jericho. It's all very familiar. In fact, they give an encouraging assessment about the whole thing. Like, don't send all the people. But send about 2,000 or 3,000 men to attack Ai. Since the people of Ai are so few, don't wear out all our people there. In other words, there are no obstacles here. This will be easy peasy, as we might say. And so they go forth with great expectation. And then those expectations are immediately shattered. In fact, as quick and concise as the destruction of Jericho was recounted, so is the failure and the absolute defeat of Israel. Verses 4 through 5. So about 3,000 men went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of them and chased them from outside the city gate to the quarry, striking them down on the descent. And this was no battle. They were absolutely overcome by the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men. No casualties appeared to have been suffered 
in the Battle of Jericho. But now it is 36 men who are the collateral damage of another man's sin. God's judgment over the nation is evident at this point. Israel having now betrayed him. Now, (coughs) sometimes people say, you know, the reason this happened was because Joshua didn't pray. Well, no, Joshua didn't pray when they went to Jericho. That's not the problem. Or they say, you know, the spies were overconfident and forgot to depend on the Lord. Well, no, the easy peasiness isn't necessarily the problem either. We have to pay attention to what the text is telling us. The reason the mission failed is because they are carrying out all of those things that they would normally do under the displeasure of God. That is why they failed. It's not so much Joshua didn't pray. It's not so much that it was an easy-peasy attitude. It's because they had forsaken God himself and betrayed him. And they're under his burning anger. That's why they suffer this defeat. They limp back into the camp. And then it says this, as a result, the people lost heart. Now, where have you read that before? Rahab said it to the Israelite spies inside Jericho, describing how the Amorites felt as they heard about the mighty deeds of God. And the kings of the Amorites beyond the Jordan said it in chapter 5 when they heard how the Israelites had crossed the Jordan on dry land. Right? This is how the pagans are reacting to the news of God's coming judgment. Now, here, that vocabulary is being used of the people of God themselves. They have lost courage. They have lost their spine. They have lost their backbone. Now they are marked by abject fear. Now they have become like the Canaanites. In fact, they are alone. They're without the help of God. And this is the great disaster. Can you imagine having all of that zeal and all of that expectation going into that city and then finding yourself completely defeated? We'll see that in chapter 8, they did underestimate the size of the city. Because the casualty count when they take that city is 12,000 plus. So they were already outmanned. But it wouldn't make any difference. I submit to you, if AI had five people there, they, Israel would have suffered defeat. That is the lesson. If the Lord God is with you, then no Jericho will ever be able to stand with you, against you. But if the Lord God is not with you, then even an AI can do you damage. God will not allow sin to run free in the midst of his covenant people, but will oppose it for our good and for his glory. Now, I wonder, when you hear about the burning anger of the Lord, how do those words land on you? What enters your mind? What's the response of your heart? Is it fear? Is it humility? Is it resentment? Is it suspicion and anger of your own? My guess is that at least for many of us, we have a tendency to to picture God's response to Israel's sin with some of our own images of human rage. Those, you know, eruptions of anger that are unpredictable, that are erratic, that are out of control, that are, at least in some measure, unreasonable and not justified. But we need to understand that is not an accurate picture of God's burning anger against sin. Anger itself is not wrong. It's not sinful. This is true even of human anger. David Collison says in his book, Good and Angry, anger is an active stance you take to oppose something that you assess as both important and wrong. You say, that matters, and it's not right. He goes on to say this, if you were indifferent or approving towards child abusers, terrorists, or cheats, you'd be morally defective. Moral sanity must disapprove of wrong, and that disapproval is the essence of righteousness anger. It's just that our anger so often is sinfully distorted, isn't it? In the way we evaluate, in the measure of our response, and in the way it's carried out. Selfishly. As James 1 verse 20 says, human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. But here's where we can't go astray. God's anger does produce the righteousness of God. Here's Collison again. God's anger is never a fit or a spasm or a bad hair day. It's never brooding hostility just waiting to explode on some innocent, well-meaning bystander who happened to get caught in the crossfire. 
God's expression, God's anger is an expression of his righteous disapproval and his personal opposition to sin, which is then always expressed in perfect measure in relationship to that sin. So here the righteous burning anger of God comes because Achan defied the explicit command and warning of God. This was a personal act of rebellion, a personal act of distrust towards the Lord and towards his word. And so it was right for God's anger to burn in response to Achan's sin. And it's right for God's anger to burn against sin today. So rather than being filled with resentment or suspicion or selfish justification before the Lord, instead we should have a proper fear, a proper humility before the one to whom every one of us must give an account for our lives. And so we see the exciting of God's burning anger against sin. Secondly, the exaltation of God's great name. You know, Joshua and the elders of Israel are wondering, what in the world happened? The shock of defeat produces a dramatic change of attitude. Look at how the leaders respond in verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening, as did the elders of Israel. They all put dust on their heads. All of these actions are designed to express lament and mourning and grief. There's no victory song tonight. There's no shouts of victory. It's a posture of lament. And instead, rather, you know, we, we hear bewilderment. Joshua is perplexed. He's stymied. Look at his prayer in verses 7 through 9. Oh, Lord God, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction? If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. Now, does that sound like language you've heard before? Well, if you've read the wilderness account, especially the experience of the spies coming back in Numbers 14, you will hear that out of the lips of Israel itself. And this man is the one who stood before those people and said, Listen, you can trust the Lord. But now he himself is bewildered. He questions the divine purpose. Why did you ever do this? He's forgotten God's promise. The walls are falling around Joshua at this point. This is a struggling faith. The certainty of the past to him was better than the reality of the present. He continues in verse 8, What can I say, Lord, now that Israel has turned its back and run from its enemies? He uses dramatic language for their fleeing. It's used only here in the Old Testament. You know, we may say, it's only 36 soldiers. It doesn't seem that bad. But remember, this is a rout. <laughs> They're on the brink of the promised land. Jericho was a complete success. And now, all of a sudden, everything's falling apart. But then, notice where he goes in verse 9. When the Canaanites and all who live in the land hear about this, they will surround us and wipe out our name, your, your name from the earth. And what will you do about your great name? Okay. It's a drastic prayer here. Well, the Lord is going to do something and is doing something for his great name. The problem is it's not the Canaanites that have offended him. It's his own people. They're the ones he's concerned about. Now, there is some debate here about Joshua's prayer, whether this is a godly example of lament like we often see in the Psalms, or rather is this actually an expression of faithlessness that's wrong. And I think when you come to prayers of lament, it's sort of hard because so much of it depends on your posture of heart before the Lord. It seems like Joshua comes dangerously close to charging God with wrongdoing, not trusting that he's going to keep his promises to bring the people into the land. And yet, I think Joshua rightly recognizes that as a people, they really are in the hands of God, under the mercy of God. And then more specifically, I think Joshua is right to appeal to God on the basis of God's own great name. And this actually has precedent from Moses. Remember how God rescued Israel dramatically out of their slavery in Egypt, how he entered into covenant relationship with them. And how did they respond? They immediately committed idolatry. And Moses knows Israel has no leg to stand on in terms of their covenant relationship with God. And they deserve to be judged for their sins. And so what does Moses appeal to in his prayer in Exodus 
chapter 32, he appeals to God's commitment in his own name, to his own reputation as the one true God who has freely bound himself to Israel by his promises. He says, Lord, if you destroy us in the wilderness, the Egyptians will say he brought them out with an evil attempt to kill them in the mountains and eliminate them from the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger and relent concerning this disaster plan for your people. Moses knew, in a very real sense, God had staked his own reputation on the well-being of his people. And I think we see the same thing here with Joshua. Lord, if we are overrun by our enemies, what's going to happen to your great name? And here again is the good news. What was true in Joshua's day is still true of God's people today. God has staked his own glory on fulfilling his saving promises to everyone who believes. This is really solid ground for us to stand on. That should give us great confidence. God is going to fulfill his promises because his name is at stake. You see, the ground of that, it doesn't finally terminate on us, but on his own glory. And he's not going to let his name be mocked. You know, even Jesus himself when he is contemplating the reality of the cross, the suffering that he was about to go through, says in John chapter 12, Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? In a sense, he says, do I want to go through with this? He knows how hard it's going to be. But you know the very next thing he prays? That is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. As he looks upon the reality of the cross, where does he put his confidence? Father, glorify your name. Fulfill your saving promises, even through the horror of the cross. You stake your name and your glory on this from eternity past. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So Jesus entrusts himself to the Father, and he goes to the cross. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. So here's one way you could apply what's happening here. Consider Joshua. He's in a fog. They've just been defeated. He doesn't even fully know why this happened. But what does he do? He appeals to God to ask for the glory of his great name. Maybe you're facing circumstances in your life where you feel, I'm in a fog. I don't even fully understand why this is happening to me. I don't even know what exactly would be the best response in this situation. Let me encourage you from God's Word. Here, here's a safe place for you to land. Here's a request you can always make in every situation. God, glorify your name. God, act in my life for the glory of your name. And then entrust yourself to the Lord who always does what is right for His people. So we see the exaltation of God's great name. Third, the example of God's corporate discipline. One of the things we can't help noticing is how God brings discipline on Israel as a whole. It's the Israelites who are unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. It's the soldiers who are defeated in battle and meet 36 men. Now that doesn't mean everybody in the nation had personally sinned the way Achan had. But God makes it clear it was the sin in their midst that was causing the trouble. And if that sin wasn't dealt with, the whole community would continue to suffer. And, and this is the blessing of this whole account. This is the difference between that shuttle disaster, right? They didn't know, and there was no way to remedy it. But now Israel finds out. God, in his mercy and grace, lets them know what's happening and why and what they can do to remedy it. So the Lord begins by revealing the problem. In verses 10 through 12, look at it. The Lord then said to Joshua, Stand up. Why have you fallen face down? In other words, this is no time to be on your face. This is the time to deal with the issue. Israel has sinned. It's not the time to mourn your losses, Joshua. It's the time to deal with Israel's sin. And notice how he reveals the problem. And he describes it very precisely. Uh, he uses an emphatic Hebrew particle, a, a little tiny word that can mean even or also. And it appears five times 
So I have to say, and even they did this. And even they did this. And even they did this. Now, my version doesn't necessarily bring out all those evens and also's, but it's, it's there well enough. Israel has sinned. They have even violated my covenant that I appointed for them. They have even taken some of what was set apart. They have even stolen. And they have even deceived. And they have even put those things with their own belongings. Even, 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 even. Right? They've done all these things. The Lord is saying, this, this is the sin. And because of that sin, notice he gives the consequences of verse 12. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. Right? You have no protection. You have no strength. You have no help from me. They will turn their backs and run from their enemies. Because they have been set apart for destruction. They have become a curse, really. I will no longer be with you. You've lost my protection. You've lost my presence. But then, the words of grace. Unless you remove from among you what is set apart. Oh, it's a wonderful thing that God would give us an unless. A remedy. And then in verse 13, he gives Joshua and until. Go and consecrate the people. Tell them to consecrate themselves for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are things that are set apart among you, Israel. You will not be able to stand against your enemies until you remove what is set apart. So it's a mercy. He has warned them. And he has let them know now of the hidden problem. And in verses 14 to 15, God outlines the process for identifying the culprit. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord selects is to come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord selects is to come forward family by family. The family the Lord selects is to come forward man by man. The one who's caught with the things set apart must be burned, along with everything he has, because he has violated the Lord's covenant and committed an outrage on Israel. So the people themselves in this very exercise are going to see God's sovereign hand at work. The Lord himself will take this man captive. You see, God is at war with the sin of Israel, and he's going to deal with that sin. Now, like last week, when we considered the destruction of Jericho, the reality of God's discipline of Israel and of his judgment specifically against Achan's whole household, it raises questions for us, right? Why does God hold all of Israel and all of his family accountable? So I want to make a few comments that I hope will be helpful in this regard. First, we must remember that God is the righteous judge of the entire earth. And he has the right to carry out that judgment against sinful people whenever he chooses. You know, sometimes we say, I don't understand why the nation itself is suffering for the sin of another. But we probably should understand it very well. Right? This isn't a new idea. In Adam's fall, we fell all. We had solidarity with Adam as our representative. And in Adam's sin, we ourselves fell. We ourselves are guilty. So there is this corporate solidarity from the beginning. And since every one of us are sinners by nature, none of us can claim an exemption from God's judgment in and of ourselves. And this is true even of children. Our only hope is God's mercy, and it should remind us that every moment we do not experience God's judgment because of our sin is a gift of God's grace. In fact, the blessing of, this, of the gospel is that we are reconciled to God in whom? One man. The Lord Jesus Christ. We have a solidarity in sin, which will destroy us, but we have a solidarity in salvation in one man that saves us. That's the argument of Paul in Romans chapter 5. If one man can bring ruin to the whole race, then why are you perplexed that one man can bring salvation to a people? If death can enter through the transgression of one, why are you amazed that grace can abound to the many through the obedience of one. Right? The disobedience of Adam brings us into God's judgment, but, but the righteous obedience and sacrifice of Christ brings us into his favor. But now, in Christ, God has so graciously and permanently provided mercy for our sins to anyone who will receive it. And so if you have not sought that refuge in Jesus Christ by faith, 
and his death and resurrection for your sins. Don't wait. God is the righteous judge of all the earth, and he will judge sin, as we see in this text. Secondly, we should recognize there is no such thing as a private sin. This is true, first of all, because God sees everything. Achan's sin is such a good example here. Secret sins are openly known by God. And in his time, all sin will be detected and dealt with. Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.24, Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment. But the sins of others surface later. So don't be deceived. God sees everything. But also, there are no private sins in the sense that you never know how your sins, which are done in secret, may reverberate in ways that you would never expect into the lives of people around you. The disobedience of one man caused defeat for the entire nation and ended with the punishment of his entire family. Don't think you can control it. By its nature, sin breeds destruction and devastation. But don't try to harbor secret sin. Don't deceive yourself into thinking it's harmless. Don't try to hide it from God. Don't compel Him to drag it into the light against your will, or even worse, to hand you over to your sin. Humble yourself before the God who sees all things and who calls you to turn away from your sin. And if you will release it, turn it over to Him willingly. For the mercy He's provided in Christ, the amazing promise of the Gospel is that you won't suffer judgment like Achan. You'll be forgiven. Third, with regard to the judgment of Achan's family, I do think since Achan hid those items within his tent, that's where his family lived and stayed. And the text isn't explicitly clear here, but it may very well be that they were complicit in his sin and brought judgment upon themselves. Just an observation. The sin affects others, right? Either by results, the loss of the 36 lives, or possibly by imitation, his family becomes privy to his own crimes. Fourth, we need to humbly acknowledge that we don't always know with certainty regarding any individual person's eternal salvation. Think about Moses, okay? Deuteronomy 32, God declares that Moses would die without entering the promised land. You know why? Because he broke faith. The same word used here. Moses broke faith with God in the midst of Israel in the wilderness. And God essentially puts him to death as an earthly, temporal consequence of his sin. He doesn't let him go into the promised land. And now if that's all we had, if it were me, I would think, I don't think he was saved. And yet we go to Hebrews 11, and he's commended for his faith. He's listed among those who were looking for a better, eternal homeland. Here's another example. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks of church members who actually die at the hand of the Lord because they're selfishly mistreating fellow church members in the context of the Lord's Supper. Right? They're put to death. But do you know what Paul goes on to say? He says this was a discipline from God so that they themselves would not be condemned along the world. Earthly death to preserve them for eternal life. Now you're thinking, what? Matthew, where are you going with this? I'm not saying sin doesn't matter. I'm not saying everybody's going to be saved. We're only saved through personal faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. God's earthly judgments, though, can be of great mercy to us as they call us to turn to Him in faith. So we need to have humility in terms of when God brings earthly judgments on any individual or any group of people. We still don't know exactly what that may mean in terms of their eternal state. And lastly, we're reminded that God's covenant people must pursue corporate holiness. We're not merely individuals who live our lives before God. And so what do we do as the church of Jesus Christ? We spur one another on as a community to love in good deeds, we exhort one another every day as a church. We lovingly confront sin when it's displayed in our midst with the hope of repentance and forgiveness and restoration. But we don't let sin just run free. 
But unchecked sin wreaks havoc on a church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. One person's sin starts small, but eventually consumes the entire congregation. So we need to take care to guard each other from sin. At times, that even compels us to discipline those who persist in unrepentant sin. Right? In removing them, we declare as a church, we can no longer affirm their confession of faith and we remove them from the church. And we, as we do that together, we trust that God will transform us, restore us, and grant growing obedience to Him. So we see the example of God's corporate discipline. Finally, the execution of God's individual justice and mercy. So we see the solidarity principle worked out even here in this particular text. And yet, the blessing here is that God will distinguish the individual who sinned from the nation that finds itself under that culpability. And that is what takes place in verses 16 to 26. You've got to get rid of the devoted things. There can be no victory over the enemy without a removal of the one who has brought about that enmity, that anger. The mission will not go forward. It will not be completed unless and until you take care of that offender. And so, Joshua rises early in the morning and brought Israel forward tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was selected by the Lord. Then the clan of the Zerahites is taken. Then the family of Zabdi is taken. And so each man individually sets forth. And Achan dies. The end of this process. Achan is taken. The truth, really, of Numbers 32, verse 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. Or really, be sure the Lord will find you out. The Lord takes the taker of his goods. What has been hidden to man now is laid open and bare, not only before the Lord, but before the people of Israel. Achan is talked about. And you, know, you wonder, as he saw the selection taking place, I don't know how long it took, but he began to see getting numbered out one by one. He himself knowing he's guilty, and yet keeping silent. Maybe hoping, thinking he might escape the eye of God. But that won't be. Jeremiah 23, verse 24, the Lord says, Can a person hide in secret places where I cannot see them? The mark of an unrepentant heart is that it doesn't confess early and honestly. It conceals sin for as long as it can. It only comes clean when it's caught in the hope of mitigating consequences. Right? That's what's happening here, isn't it? So Achan is caught, and he's finally confronted by Joshua. Verse 19. So Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. Make a confession to him. I urge you, tell me what you have done. Don't hide anything from me. Then at last, he admits what he's done. Verse 20. Achan replied to Joshua, It is true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did when I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Babylon. Five pounds of silver and a bar of gold weighing a pound and a quarter. I coveted them and took them. You can see for yourself, they are concealed in the ground inside my tent with the silver under the cloak. He saw, he desired, he coveted, and he took. It's almost exactly the path of temptation leading to sin which Satan led Eve down in Genesis 3. He looked at the forbidden fruit. He saw that it was beautiful, good to eat, and useful for making one wise. And she took it, and she ate it. James 1, 14-15 says, Each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. A familiar sequence. One I'm sure which we are all familiar with. A series of steps, one leading to the next. And pretty soon, Cross the line. And the thing about it is, now that the truth has come out, it all looks so very sordid and pathetic and insignificant. Achan, at the time, was captured by it, overwhelmed by it. How enticing! How beautiful! I've got to have it! But now, as Joshua sends messengers who run to his tent and uncover what's buried beneath it, he can't even enjoy it. It really is exposed as an ugly, small thing in the bitter light of day. So bring it all out to Joshua and lay it all out before Israel, confirming 
Achan speak up. And so Joshua finally passes sentence on Achan and his household in verse 25. The plague on his men. He said to Achan, why have you brought us trouble? Today the Lord will bring you trouble. So all Israel stoned them to death. They burned their bodies, threw stones on them, and raised over him a large pile of rock that remains still today. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, that place is called the Valley of Achor still today. Achor sounds like Achan. It means trouble. And we, we see then the reality of what Jesus said. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And for Achan, where his treasure was, there his body is there also. And so we see God's individual judgment and mercy. And even as we wrestle with some of the corporate aspects of how God was dealing with his people, it's important to know and to see the clear individual contrast presented between Achan and Rahab. Now think about this. Rahab was a prostitute. She lived among the people that God had declared, my judgment is falling on them, the people of Canaan. Achan was a descendant of the favored tribe of Judah. He lived among the people of Israel who had received God's promise, I'm giving you this land as my gracious gift to you. Both had opportunity to respond to God, and the response was very different, and the outcome was very different. Rahab, a believing Canaanite, acted faithfully, and as a result was delivered from destruction. In effect, she became an Israelite. Achan, a disbelieving Israelite, acted faithlessly, and as a result was not delivered, but destroyed. In effect, he became a Canaanite. In the end, no one will be saved by ethnicity. No one will be saved by family membership. Each one of us will finally, as individuals, be saved on the basis of genuine, personal faith and repentance in the one true God and Savior, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we take in this dreadful scene, two final things I want you to make sure you don't miss we conclude. First, I hope you get the message loud and clear that sin is serious. It's serious. All sin. There are no little sins. There are no inconsequential sins. Because God is holy, all sin is damnable. And make no mistake, this episode is not some harsh Old Testament pattern that no longer occurs in the New Covenant Church. Remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 who lied to the Holy Spirit and kept some of the proceeds of the sale of their land from themselves while they were pretending to give it all. And like Achan, God struck them down dead right at the beginning of the church, just like the beginning of the conflict. Sin is deadly, and we must become deadly serious in dealing with it. We're not to toy with it. We're not to hide it. We're not to dabble in it or play with it. We're to forsake it and kill it. Do not touch any of the devoted things. Tremble before the judge of all the earth. Fear the Lord. Forsake sin. One day, judgment will come. There's no hiding your guilt before God. The one who conceals his sin will not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces them will find mercy. And then the last thing we must not miss. Right at the end of verse 26. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. What turned the anger of God away? It was Achan's death, wasn't it? Achan's death meant Israel was spared. By God, by it, God's just anger was satisfied. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 15, in the context of the oracle of judgment upon the sinful, wayward people of God, the valley of Achor is mentioned again. And we expect it to be similarly bad news. Bad things have happened in the valley of Achor. The judgment of God fell at the valley of Achor. Is that what's going to happen now to the wayward people of God? But no, instead, the Lord says, There I will make the valley of Achor into a gateway of hope. How can this place be a gateway of hope for a sinner who deserves the just judgment of God? The valley of Achor is a gateway of hope because here, one man from the tribe of Judah died for the people. And the wonder of the Christian gospel is that in the fullness of time, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the just judge himself became that one man 
and bore his judgment for us. We are the guilty ones, yet we are saved because he has taken our place. So let me ask you, what's hidden under your sin? Is there any secret sin in your life? You've excused it, perhaps minimized it. You've justified it. I'm not as bad as the other guy. I'm not hurting anybody. I've got this under control. Control. I can stop it any time. But friend, the story of Achan makes it clear. You can't hide it forever. And judgment is coming. Time to get serious about your sin. And as you do, know there is a gateway of hope open for you. One has died that the burning anger of God might be turned away. Look, you will either be condemned like Achan, or you will take Christ. Trust Christ. Flee to Christ who was condemned for sinners in our place. Those are your only choices as you see the horror of your sin and the just judgment of God. Which will it be? I plead with you not to hide your sin anymore. Confess, repent, and pass through the gateway of hope that God has opened in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Lord, your word tells us that if you confess with your mouth that you singular, personally, as an individual, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Since there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on Him. So everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, thank you for this clear and wonderful promise and invitation for us as individuals to respond to the great salvation that you provided in Jesus Christ. Lord, please don't let anyone here continue in their rebellion against you. But by your grace, cause each one of us turn in repentance and faith to know the joy of your salvation so freely given to us in Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.